listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Welcome, welcome. This is the Inclusive AF podcast. Uh, my name is Katie Van Horn, and we are missing Jackie today. Jackie is uh, uh, otherwise uh, occupied, so she's not able to join us. And I know she's super bummed about it because uh, this one is going to be a great one. Um, and so uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to, to you, Becky, just to introduce yourself, tell a little bit about who you are, all that good stuff. I can do. Thank you so much for, for having me, Katie. It's fun to to reconnect. So Katie and I know each other from Target Corp. So I yes. was an operations leader. Katie uh, was in HR. And so we interacted a lot. So it's fun to see our paths reconnect in this way when we're in two completely different spots now. Yep. Um, so pretty fun. Uh, so my name is Becky Yvonne. Uh, my pronouns are she and her and they. I I'm an associate professor of management at Metropolitan State University, which is part of the Minnesota State College System. I've been in this role for four years full time. Uh, and, and so I've been in Minnesota now 17 years. I know I had to like think when I'm like, oh, my goodness, like been one, I can't while. believe I'm old enough to be anywhere 17 years. And two, <laughs> I can't believe I'm old that I've been here 17 years. So I'm originally from Los Angeles. And um Growing up in California, especially in the time I grew up, I remember, for example, the LA riots. Race has been a really salient conversation that I've had and how it showed up in my work has ebbed and flowed. Um, I've worked in nonprofit organizations and I have worked in corporate organizations. So I've worked at Target and then I worked at Cargill for two years um, in their human resources area. Uh, I live, I'm, I'm married. Um, my wife and I have been together for 20 years. We are parenting two boys together, uh, Ben and Cole, 11 and nine. One is in middle school, which has just been awful. So yeah, I and mean, you know, we blacked that part of our, of our life out, right? I'm like, oh buddy, I know this is hard, but I don't remember it because I blacked it out because it's hard. And right. so, yeah, and so I'm really excited to to be here with you today. I know that um, some work by a, a research team that we interviewed uh, white DEI professionals, and and I know that's what we'll be talking about. So we'll be weaving in and out of both my personal experience, but also the research. And I'm happy to go in whatever direction this takes us. Awesome, perfect. So I so yeah, I would love to start off with just what brought you to this work. So. You know, when, you know, when last we were connected at Target, you know, I, I know that you were, you were leading a team, all of that type of stuff. And so what, what pulled you into this other than obviously kind of, you know, your life and, you know, some of the experiences that you've had, but yeah, why this work? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, and I do think about it quite a bit. Um, I think that in some way, I, I never remember being a kid that was able to be quiet um, I, I vividly remember um, on my walk to school, walking by a Planned Parenthood and getting into fights with people who were protesting. Um, and, and so I've always felt this really strong pull to speak out to when things don't seem right, or it seems like somebody, fairness, fairness is my language. 
And and I think that that, that is, as a kid, I can reflect back on that. It, it's interesting to juxtapose that and that I grew up uh, with a really racist white supremacist parental figure. And so I had this activist streak. I very much was uh, speak out about any oppression that I saw, yet in my own house, there was very much explicit racism on a daily basis. Um, and so that was a really interesting world to, to navigate. And I don't think I sorted that out until I got a little bit older and I came out. And so that was a whole other thing. So I came out of my 20s. Um, I identify as a lesbian and I grew up incredibly religious and I'm part of a religion that doesn't support that. And so I think that I really, all of these things surfaced and really confronted between my own identities and my own beliefs about humanity. And so I found myself gravitating towards anti-oppression work. Like it, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my own safety. It's bigger than my own comfort. It's really, um, humanity deserves better. You that and that I've always loved people, truly, genuinely love people. I think they're now one on one that can be really hard. Um, but collectively, humanity to me is is I I love them. I, I I think that the power that we have to make change and to do right by other people is vast. Um, and it's interesting, again, that I hold that belief and that I'm an incredible cynic. I don't know. So that makes for some fun, fun work, right? Because we're all human. And, and so I started getting involved with ERGs, uh, employee resource groups, when I was at Target. Um, so I started out um, getting involved in the LGBT group, but then I, then I started getting involved in the African-American um, ERG because racism is so apparent in the LGBT community. And I needed that for me to have that intersectionality work. Personally, um, and I know I've always shared some personal, but I, I think it's important for me to also mention that both of my boys joined our family through adoption and they're African-American. And I think that I feel a real sense of accountability to them and actually an entire community to raise them for, for me to be race conscious and to work on my own stuff so my kids can grow up and be the beautiful black men that they were meant to be. Um, and that can be quite complicated. They're growing up in whiteness. And um, yeah, so that's, so I know that was like kind of a lot of different paths, but it, it really brought me here. And then when I decided to get my doctorate, I did it in business. So I received some advice when I was getting my master's. Somebody said, no matter what you do, go into business. You'll always have a job. And, but I didn't want to research those types of topics. And so I researched uh, senior executives that identified as lesbians. And I found a way to bring the things that I care about or that have meaning for me into business. And I think business is slowly catching up. I, I think that uh, there's a lot of movement, a lot of academic movement. And, and so it's pretty cool to be in a space. I'm, I'm in a college of management, um, but, I, but I research diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. And so I, I feel uh, really lucky a lot of times uh, that I get to do what I do and that I get to work with like the coolest people on the planet. That's awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, it just, and 
thinking about the path that you have been on and you know the the different experiences that I'm aware of, um, you know, I think it is one of those things that, you know, we, I always have told people Target was such a good training ground and such a good proving ground for so many different topics. And, uh, you know, obviously we can talk about kind of current events with Target and some of the, you know, the recent stuff that have, you know, has not, uh, has not been great, we'll say. Um, but, you know, and I think, you know, you and I both have dear friends that still work there and, you know, are doing the absolute best they can to represent and to, you know, do all of the right things. Um, but I, I would love to hear a little bit about this most current research that you have done. Uh, and obviously, you know, I, I will preface it for folks that um, we will obviously share the link to the the research so you can read it for yourself. But uh, the, the research is really around uh, white people doing DEI work. So uh, <laughs> this one is, is near and dear to my heart. So would love to hear a little bit about kind of what you did and what you found. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and thanks for sharing the link. And I also offer up anybody who is not in a place where accessing this article is free to please connect with me directly. Um, I'm able to, sh to share it that way since I, I, I know that it can get kind of expensive to access yeah. these academic articles. So um, the paper is uh, called White DEI Professionals Perception of Their Contribution to Advancing Workplace DEI. And we're really looking at, so what is this leveraging and decentering whiteness? There were five of us on the research team. Um, Dr. Stephanie Sisko from the University of Minnesota and I were, were first authors. And then we partnered with Dr. Crystal Sarek Fashant, Ms. Neela Nandial, and Dr. Stacy Robbins. And we're from three different institutions, um, different backgrounds, different degrees, and really came together to say, okay, how can we do some research in this environment that really um, begins to unpack whiteness in the workplace? And it's a really, uh, I don't want to say tricky topic. That's not fair. I think many of us can identify what whiteness in the workplace is. Many of us can identify dominant culture in the workplace. I think, however, it it gets complicated when we start using words like whiteness and anti-racism and white supremacy. And many of the organizations I know that, that I've worked in, even in nonprofits, believe wholeheartedly in meritocracy, work hard, get promoted. And um, we really wanted to unpack that a, a little bit. And so as this team was talking and it, and it was, about a month after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, uh, we felt like research is, it was one contribution in that moment of many that we could make um, to, to really getting to the root. Like what, what can, and it's not even like what, how can we better understand this phenomenon of being white? And, but we wanted to see from people who are doing this work. So not like, we can pick all the bad folks, quote unquote, right? Because there aren't good or bad, but bad, we'll use that word, those that are making lots of visible mistakes, white supremacists, et cetera. But we're like, what about these people who are being paid to do DEI? What's their story? How did they get there? What What is their, how, what's their passion? What drives them? And so we met with 
16 different individuals across the United States. They work at vastly different organizations from Fortune 500 companies to government organizations and nonprofits, um, all different parts of the US, all different ages, um, and all of them identified as white. And really asked them, okay, so tell us, tell us your story. How did you get involved in DEI? What's it like being white in DEI? What are the benefits? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Uh, you know, what was your onboarding like? What was training like? And came up with um, a really rich conversation. I, I feel like it was so hard to end those interviews. I'm like, I want to keep talking to you because I think that there is such a richness to individual stories. In the end, we we took all of this information we got and we found four broad areas and ways that people engaged. So we, we, we really tried to look of like, how can we distill all of these stories? And we found that there were four key ways that individuals engaged in DEI work. Uh, the first one is as a leader. And I don't mean this by title, but I think that they all saw themselves and have had others refer to them as the DEI experts within their organization. Some of them did not want that. Some of them were okay having that, but they really saw this role of being a leader as as having the responsibility and accountability of educating white colleagues and leaders that that they saw that there was this leadership element to their work. Uh, we also heard folks, and, and we called it a beneficiary, um, how did individuals approach DEI work through the agency of whiteness? So what was the advantage of being white in DEI? What, what walls did this break down? What tables were you at that perhaps other people have a tougher time getting to? And was it effective? So is, you know, I mean, that that's that's up for debate. Debate. Is it more effective for me, Becky, to talk to CEO of said company, who's also white, when neither one of us have that lived experience? Um, and I think there is this initial lower defense. Um, we we, you know, I, I think that that we're all familiar with the term white fragility and and what how that manifests itself in different spaces. And also the people we interviewed talked about that. The next one was an interesting one because not all people like this word, and it was ally. Um, and and it's not that they liked it. It's just that they didn't quite some of them really embraced being an ally, and some of them just did not like this term ally. Yet they all worked at corporations that had ally training. And so it is a word that's being used in companies, but individuals themselves felt very uneasy about that word. How we defined it was, we, we looked at it two ways. We looked at this language choice of being an ally, we also really asked like, okay, so you're on a DEI team. Talk to us about anti-racism. What language do you use in the workplace and out of the workplace around racism versus um, maybe broader terms like diversity, inclusion? And, and so we, we really dug into that. Um, and I think a lot of folks really, really... Um, 
really spoke to Dr. Kendi's work around ally not being a fixed term, this idea that I can be a racist one minute and an anti-racist the next minute, and that can switch throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And that it that it is, it's it's a target that I am working towards. And then the very last uh, one, we played with the word forever, and Dr. Cisco and I talked about this forever, but we went with Pathfinder. We we realized that folks really were there's for all of us, a lot of tensions and complexities to the work. And how did individuals navigate that? And in many ways, they had to all learn how to hold the, these tensions um, with individuals in their workplace, with leaders in their workplace, with ERGs in their workplace, um, and also not really having any training to do this. Mm -hmm. And and so that that that's really... I know that was a long summary, but that was really a summary summary of this work. And uh, the stories that people told um, were really powerful and inspiring. And honestly, it, 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 it makes me think like, okay, so how, how can we do this work better, differently? How can we do this work in a way that minimizes harm? Um, can we train white people to do this work truly? Like, is is that a training we can offer that could be effective? Um, and I and I I don't think we have answers for those today, but I know that that's what we were keeping top of mind as we were interviewing folks. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when you think about those four kind of uh, personas or or mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them, yeah, is there a, like, did you determine that one was better than another or that there was a stack rank or there was a progression of, oh, you start as this and then you move to next, 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 or how, like, what was the, what was the logic there? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. And I don't necessarily think that we found one was better um, or that there's even necessarily a rank, um, but that these were all working together in tandem. And it was really founded in two, like we tried to, to situate this in kind of identity development and we looked at it, how am I doing this in my in-group identity and how am I doing this as an out-group identity and what is my in-group identity and what does that look like? And and I think one thing that, that we did see is some of these behaviors were intentional, some were happenstance, and some were forced upon an individual based on their circumstance. And, and that all of them evolved in in time, their views evolved, um, their understanding of the work evolved in time. And, and so I think that's also like, I, I, you know, compared to like 
Hamo-Kuhn's ladder of inference, right? Which is this really like clear path moving up. Um, we did not see that in this particular research. But somebody did reference Okun's research, research, put that out there. So yeah, right, this, there's a lot of these intersections and weaving um, in this work. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, it, what you just said, I, I think resonates so much with me personally doing this work that, you know, I, I think we all, you know, anyone who's doing this work can talk about the mistakes that you've made as you've been learning, as you've been growing and, you know, and Jackie and I both talk about the fact that neither of us are experts because there's just a constant evolution going on of how this work shows up every single day and every single different scenario and who is in the room. And and I always, you know, think about the fact that, you know, I've made so many mistakes in my career and doing this work, but it is the, you know, you still get up in the morning, you still try and um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Aubrey Blanche. Um, at, uh, she's at, at Lajan. Now she's at Culture Amp. Um, she did a ton of work around just DEI, like the um, exhaustion that comes with doing this work. But then layer on top of it, some of the ongoing trauma that people of color, that people in marginalized groups, et cetera, have to deal with. Like I talk about the fact that I can take off my work hat and this you know, who I am when I go out to get groceries or to, you know, whatever it might, you know, it is I might be doing, whereas other folks cannot. And so there is the, yes, you're going to make a ton of mistakes or you're going to make mistakes. I shouldn't say a ton of mistakes, but you're going to make mistakes, but it's also what is the impact that you're having? And the one that, and, you know, I, I think back to this earlier in my career where I was very much all about equity oh, we just need to treat everyone the same. And, you know, to your point, like fairness was all, it, it still is a very, you know, important thing to me. And, uh, you know, and so it was always like that equity piece and thinking about that versus equality. And again, how my brain has changed and how I think about, you know, some of the HR processes that I was a part of throughout my earlier career. And we were looking for folks to fit a certain mold to have, you know, that type A driver personality, to have this, to have that. And there wasn't a lot of room for different or for someone that did not fit the mold. And, and I think we had some, especially at Target, had some great folks who were, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Caroline Wenga, I'm thinking, uh, mm -hmm. uh, oh my goodness, I cannot remember her name. The woman that was in charge of uh, ESG and uh, uh, anyways, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but you know, some of these folks that they, they were outside the mold and they made it work, but it was very much a, this is an exception. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's been in so many of the places that I've worked, it's the, you have to fit this mold, you have to fit this thing. And how do you change your entire culture to say, that's actually not what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, and so would love to just hear your thoughts on like, you know, as you heard the stories, First, were there any that like kind of stood out to you as like, wow, obviously I don't want you to share anything that is not, you know, <laughs> that's confidential, mm -hmm. but anything that stood out for you as you heard the stories? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I think you raise a good point and, and one that I just want to, that I, that I think a lot about and that, that I feel really intentional and passionate about this and that. Yes, I do think that pick a company and there is a mold 
Mm-hmm. And and maybe and maybe that mold is a big mold, <laughs> and yeah. maybe it's a really narrow mold. But there is a mold. I mean, it's like asking people to divine professionalism, right? Could I go to work in pajamas? Literally, could I show up in pajamas, right? So there's some level of professionalism or decorum that we have agreed upon. But who decides that? Right. And I think that's why in my research, um, I've not wanted to interview people about about how they've navigated the workplace. I think that's incredibly important, but I think it sends the wrong message because I think the message is sometimes gets received as if you speak up more in meetings, if you're more assertive, if you do these 10 things, then people will begin to respect you and you'll fit in better in the workplace. But I really wanted to get to the gatekeepers of the workplace, the gatekeepers of the culture. Um, Who are those folks with formal and informal power. And I think in this case, these DEI leaders have a lot of informal power. They're providing collectively, their work is providing reports directly to CEOs of major corporations. Um, They're providing data analysis uh, of HR. They're They're doing a lot of things that are creating visibility about gaps in their organizations to very senior leaders. Um, so then what does that look like as you begin to, you know, um, use that power to 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 really break down the culture? Now, the hope is in everybody and I say everybody, but but and also in, in this case, we're talking really specifically about race, but that people of color can show up to work how they show up to work and that we're not going to put people in these molds. And, yeah, we might have a couple of rules around you know, I don't know, dress, I don't know, pick something, but it's not around our personalities. It's not around our lived experience. It's, it's not around, you know, those things that research time and time again, actually shows don't impact if somebody's successful in the workplace. Um, And, and so I, I think that a lot of people talked about how they did that, how they were in rooms with CEOs and how they, I, I think of one story, um, there there was a person who worked for a major sports organization, um, identified it as female, and would talk a lot about, I am the only woman in any given room at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so she was put in charge of DEI because that's usually what happens. You're the one of this. So, hey, go lead, go lead everybody else who's a one of another identity group. And had a moment where somebody said, hey, I get that you're a woman. And race is a huge issue in this organization. Racism, not race, racism is a huge issue. And I think that she spent months meeting with people, unpacking her own stuff, mm-hmm. figuring out like, oh, how can I, as a white woman, show up in meetings? And I mean, she was with the head of the organization and spoke out in a big meeting around like, we're not doing enough. And here's why, and here's the data to back it up. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was a very scary moment. And I think in that moment, she'll talk about how she didn't mind if she lost her job. She didn't mind. 
not that these things wouldn't be hard or, but that statistically she would be okay. I think, you know, and I think that the, she felt what she had to say was more important and had had to be said in that moment. And it was worth risking her reputation for. And in the end, in this case, it was positive, but people told stories where that was not positive Mm -hmm. when they were told that they needed to be quiet, when they were told don't do that again and don't bring that up again. Um, where they were told they were flat out wrong. Like the data isn't right. You know, uh, what you're saying is wrong. And, and I think that individuals have had to really navigate that. And I, I think that those are the stories that really weigh on my mind because how does an individual, how do I get there? How do I, how do I get to a point where I am speaking out and it doesn't necessarily feel like a risk for me, even though the risk is huge mm-hmm. on the outside, my job, my, my livelihood or whatever these things are. But in that moment, it's like, man, that is so secondary to human beings, mm-hmm. to the humanity of people. And, and I think a lot about that uh, um, and how, and how people shared those stories, how they got where they, they were to that space. And most of them shared a story along those lines. Which like, it is so fascinating. And that's the thing that I've said. And, you know, and I, I do not say this flippantly at all, but it is the, I know there are certain things I can say in a room that Jackie cannot, or I know there are things that I can't say in a room that a white man could. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there are there, that's that piece of, to your point, the story that you just referenced, like the person knew my job is going to still be safe. Whereas if, you know, my counterpart that maybe is a person of color, it is going to be seen as, oh, it's just that, you know, so-and-so stir in the pot again or, you know, whatever. And you do have those moments of just like, who, who can say this and why can certain people say it and certain people can't. And, and that again, goes back to just the overall, to your point earlier of who are those gatekeepers? Who are the folks that are kind of writing those unwritten rules um, and, you know, defining those things in the culture of what is okay, what is not okay. And it, it is so fascinating to hear, you know, just that, you know, the, these folks, you know, definitely share some very similar stories to ones that I've heard from my, you know, counterparts that are, are, are people of color. And again, you know, I said this before we started recording, a lot of times I like to bring folks in when I'm going and working with a client, I'll bring some of my peers in that have different lived experiences. And it's very intentional and very purposeful because I want folks to hear other stories because again, I don't have the lived experience and I'm not going to pretend that I do. And I think those are just so helpful and it, and, and to keep them safe, but also to make sure that the right people are in the room, the leaders, the elect, you know, executives are in the room to hear these stories because it does sometimes come down to, oh, that can't, that data can't be right. Oh, that data can't be true. And you're like, well, <laughs> I don't think anyone was making stuff up. Like these are real stories. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. Um, so like, as you think about the research and like, what is next to like, you know, where, where do you take this research next? Yeah. Um, 
So I, I think that we thought about a, a couple of different things. Be, because this was very isolated, we, we found ourselves very curious how this manifests in a team environment. Mm -hmm. So almost everybody in one way or another talked about the harm that they know they cause to um, their BIPOC friends, employees in their learning. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that be literally asking somebody, hey, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Or having people who love you enough to provide feedback to you. Both of those things can be a lot of work mm -hmm. for our friends of color. And, and, and so I think that we were curious on a team like DEI, what does learning look like in that space? And it, I, I mean, we can assume that there's undue burden on colleagues of color. And we would love to know like what can be done to, to alleviate that. Uh, I mean, the burnout rate of, of a chief diversity officer is incredibly high. It's, it, it's outrageous. I think the average tenure is something like two and a half years or, or, or something really small. Um, and the pay of, of all C-suite jobs, that one is substantially less than any other C-suite job across the board. And so we wonder like, could, could there be some learnings of how teams work together to alleviate some of that extra work, some of that burden? Um, how can that be built in in a different way? So I, I think that that's one thing that, that we are curious. And, and I, as a white researcher, um, I, I try to be cautious uh, about how I move forward with interviewing people of color or communities of color. It is, I don't ever want this to feel like I'm looking in um, at communities. And so that would be led by um, another researcher, probably Dr. Cisco. And, and I would absolutely be happy to, to help behind the scenes. And, and I think as a research team, we talk about that a lot. Like what is our role? How does our own race identity and our own lived experience impact what we decide to do next. But I think that team dynamic was something that we thought was really fascinating. Um, we also thought it could be interesting to uh, really get to, I think that we found interviews with cisgender, uh, straight men interesting. And there were a number of them. I know at one point we're like, oh, we don't have any. And then we opened it up and it wound up being about 20% of our, of our data set. Because I think that that could also help unlock how can we provide these experiences in workplaces that inspire, engage, encourage. I'm not even quite sure what the right word is, to be quite honest with you, individuals to begin caring about their there are other humans around them, humanity. What does that look like um, in, a, in a workplace environment? So I think those are the two things that we've been kind of kicking the rock around on, um, trying to see how we're, how we're gonna do that. I, I think, you know, at both of those directions are, are so good. And, and, and the, the piece that I, I keep coming back to as you're talking is just the, it's not about changing the people who are in those marginalized groups because that has always been kind of the the historical 
you know, go to as they, you know, assimilate into whatever the culture is and that shift that we're trying to have, but also honoring the experiences that people of color have had in these environments. And I'm saying people of color, but we could really, you know, sub in any number of diversity dimensions, but the, the experiences where it was, and, and I think this was years ago, I went to a SHRM conference um, and it was a, a DNI conference for Sherman. And, and one of the speakers was talking about the fact that uh, he was a white male, uh, gay, married, had children. And he was talking about the fact that when I first started working before I came out, I had to switch pro. Like if someone said, hey, so what'd you do this weekend? Switching pronouns so that it was, oh, you know, and you could never say my partner. It was, he had to say my wife and I, you know, did this, this and this. And he's like the, just the burden of a, always having to think about that, not being able to hang a picture of my family up, not being able. And, you know, and those are things that we have moved away from in so many places, but there are still those places where it's still not safe for folks to share, Hey, yeah, I'm part of the LGBTQ community or, Hey, I'm, you know, maybe I present white, but I am a part of whatever group. And just some of these things that we you don't understand the burden of until you do start to hear some of these stories and these experiences. And, and, you know, as you said, I have a, a dear friend, Joe Gerstad, who is a white male that does this work and he's in Nebraska and, and he talks about the fact like it's awkward sometimes, but I show up on that stage and I'm talking about, Hey, other white men, here's what we need to do. And, and I think that's some of the part that, you know, some of the pieces that are just so interesting is it's not the, oh, hey, how do we get the people of color or the people from those marginalized groups to do a certain thing or act a certain way? It's how do we change that majority? How do we change the majority to say, this is actually the way it should be working. And, and you know, we just had a, a Dr. Roxy Manning, who is phenomenal. She was just on an episode, which will air uh, in a couple of weeks. And she was talking about, you know, the, the global majority and the fact that it's not white people. Um, and, you know, when you talk about the global majority, I thought, yes. yeah, and, and you think about that. And I think for so many folks, especially in the U S who are very U uh, S centric in their way of thinking, it is the, Oh no, we are the majority group, but it's like, not even a little bit, you know, like not even close. So yeah. I know I'm like jumping around in a lot of places, but it is just no, so fascinating so to see, uh, you know, how this all plays out. And I'm excited to see, you know, the, this research already, I think is just such a, a great starting point and such a great place for folks that are wanting to get into DEI and maybe don't know where to start, because I think all of the roles that you're talking about, all those personas are ones that every single person could take on. And, you know, like you mm -hmm. said, you know, Dr. Kennedy talks about like, there are moments that you're going to be the ally. There's others that you're going to be, you know, in whatever position and, you know, whatever role and how do you act in those right ways or do the right things in those certain circumstances to advance the conversation. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. 
If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, it, yeah, it's so fascinating. And, you know, I think one thing that's been interesting being in academics um, is to be able to see <laughs> a little bit behind the curtain of like, why are, or like, when I see students who are majoring in business administration and I think about all the theories and all, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We get that in HR as well. Mm -hmm. And begin to really unpack these almost sacred cows that we have in the workplace. Like this is the right way to have an organization. This is the right way to do a strategy. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that there is a pretty big group of people who are pushing back and saying that's incredibly westernized. And uh -huh. I, I mean, by any, if I were to just go to and ask my colleagues, like, tell me who you think the three most important management theorists are in your field, I, I feel fairly confident that off the top of the off their top of their head that they would be white, perhaps European, depending yeah. on the time frame, mm -hmm. uh, men. Right. And and so I think academics is really pushing that. And I'm hoping that that begins to, to be another lever that we start pulling in workplaces where we can say, hey, actually, there is another way to do it. And this is what it is. And here's the research to back it up. But the hard, hairy thing with academics is it takes so long. And, yes. you know, it's like, come on, let's get it on. Let's let's, yes. let's get this figured out. Right. And. So yeah, I think I think you're you're right on with that. And and so I refuse to tell people, here's what you're doing wrong. And if you just did this, work would be easier because I don't actually believe that's true. No. I, yeah. I think then there would be another thing that that person's not doing right because if the culture, if the people, if that direct leader <laughs> has biases that they have not acknowledged, right. worked on even, acknowledging isn't even always enough, like that person will continue to hit roadblocks that are no fault of their own. Right. And and I would agree with you. I mean, I, I just, as you asked that question, I was thinking like, who would I, who would I mention or who would I think of? And, you know, obviously the, you know, for HR, it's, you know, Dave Ulrich, of course, is the, you know, the godfather on our end. But mm -hmm. then you think about, you know, some of the the older white men who, you know, ran some of these large corporations and still are very influential in, you know, how people work and, and how people think about work. Um, I, I, I recently reread um, a book called Culture Map. Mm, I haven't read that. Sorry, I'm sitting Ooh. in my bed to record, and, and of course now I'm like, <laughs> no oh, worries, I get it, I get it, no problem. Down. You no, let me lay down for a bit. Yeah, I love it. Um, but it's you know it talks about some of these these factors of how do you start to think about interacting with different cultures and different groups and who's right and who's wrong, and it's just it's a great book. But um. I want to ask you, because, you know, you, you're talking about uh, academia, and obviously that's kind of been a, a hot topic uh, recently in the world of DEI is, you know, some of the legislation that has occurred around, you know, uh, I'm going to say like anti-CRT, but that's not even the right word, anti-DEI anti conversations or anti-culture conversations in academia. Would love just your your thoughts and and kind of what you're hearing from from your side of the fence. Yeah, I I think that it is um I, I 
It's a, it's interesting. It's interesting how many people are talking about critical race theory where like five years ago, I don't think hardly anybody could have defined it unless you were in academics. Right. And I think CRT has, has really become the new word <laughs> for black or marginalized communities or BIPOC or sub in whatever movement somebody's fight, DEI fighting against. And, um, and what's interesting is I think what we're seeing happening is actually just reinforcing the validity of what critical race theory is because mm -hmm. all of the um, parts of critical race theory are we're seeing them, right? Like we're seeing it's an everyday occurrence. We're seeing it's not a, it's not a one-off. It's not an accident um, that it's, it's the air we breathe um, until those in dominant culture see themselves as part of the solution. We will remain in the space that we're in. Those are really critical things that Bell talks about with critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I think that What's what what I what I see is and I'm in um, a management school. Um, I'm also uh, in a state right now today that doesn't have that legislation, and I preface that because I think it could be any one of us at any time. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that there is sometimes in the the field that I'm in, there's this perceived safety, like, of course, it's not going to hit business, because we care about innovation and diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like, these are values of ours. But they haven't been. I think mm -hmm. the folks that are that I see impacted the most when the most stress are folks that are in ethnic studies departments, mm -hmm. those folks that are visibly talking about race and racism. Yeah. Um, I think I can mask mine in a in under equity or inclusion or managing a workforce, pick a topic. It's right. not so easy when I'm talking about African American history. Like that's a that there's that's what I'm talking about. And also most professors in that field identify as a person of color. And and so I think that I have seen a lot of stress from my colleagues in that area and what simultaneously what they've said because again not my lived experience so I want to be really sensitive to that um they've said also this is not the first time this has happened like this is pretty ongoing it perhaps it's a different word it's a different thing but in some way anti-racism work has always been under attack budget-wise legislatively from dominant culture. And so how do, so I've really been trying to follow the, the leaders in the anti-racism space to say, okay, how do I pivot? How, and how do I support differently? What does that look like truly in a really pragmatic way in my work, um, in my research? Who am I working with? What does this look like? Um, yeah, so I think it'll be an interesting year and higher ed, we'll, we'll continue to see more of this, Yeah, um, is my guess. My, my guess, I have no knowledge, oh, at least for another year, right? I mean, after the presidential election, at least, if not yeah. longer, depending who wins. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah I I think I, that's, uh, it's, it's so fascinating to me, you know, and I, uh, 
So the University of Southern Florida actually put out a training uh, and it was a, like a certificate program around DEI and, and onboarding folks to being DEI uh, consultants or, or you know, within their uh, workplace, you know, running ERGs, whatever it might be. And I was looking for the coursework the other day to share it with someone. I was like, oh, it's gone. And, and I was like, okay. And, and it might, and I'm going to, I'm going to say, it might be that I just could not find it. So I'm going to try and (laughs) say that, but it was one of those like, oh wait, they're in Florida. So it very well could be it's done. Um, And, and that's the part also that I think, you know, there's so much good stuff that folks have built and are trying to get out there to the masses and it's unfortunate that it's being wrapped into this, you know, woke, anti-woke yeah. conversation that's so like, I, 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 the word still cracks me up because it is the, so you don't want to be woke, meaning you don't want to know anything that's going on. Okay. Makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, it's this really coded language, right? And yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you in class, I spend a, because I think this, some of the, I spend so much time with students truly asking them, what do you mean when you say that? Yes. <laughs> like, what exactly. do you, like, because I think that there's this idea that we all kind of know, and it isn't until we really start talking about what do you mean by woke or anti-woke or like, right. what is that? What is it based in? What's the historical context for it? And and I, I don't know. I just always hope that it's something that they'll reflect on because a lot of times I'm, I'm like, I don't know what we're talking about anymore because I'm right. hearing the words, but they're being used in a completely different context. And so I feel it's like, is this a dog whistle right now? Or right. Are, are we, are we really talking about, I don't know. So, so I do think that, yeah, these words get used interchangeably <laughs> for mm-hmm. things and, and can can and many times be a dog whistle. And so it's trying Absolutely. to figure out what that is. Yeah. And and I, I think that's such a critical piece of advice of asking the question, what 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 do you mean by that? And that's something that I think with all of these topics, just digging in when someone is talking about something, just, hey, tell me more about that. Why do you think that way? What do you, you know, what do you think that means? That type of thing, because I think that slows people down enough that they start to think about the language that they're using. And once you start digging in and they go, oh, well, that's not what I meant, then you have a different conversation and a different kind of educational uh, just uh, well, conversation, Indeed. So, which is great. Uh, so, Becky, I know I have taken uh, way more of your time, but I want to just ask one question of you. Like, what is one thing or what is one or two things? What are one or two things that you would like for our audience to have heard from this conversation? Yes, yeah, so I think... Um... One, thank you for the work that you're doing and that you continue to do, you and everybody who's listening. I think that um, this is the work of love and it's not always easy. And and so thank you. Um, I, I think it really matters. The other thing that that I that I think a lot of folks came to and uh, there's this podcast, if anybody is interested in, called The Modern White Man with Ken Lawrence and, and Paul Johnson. And they talk a lot about um, whiteness and what does it mean to be white. And one thing I think that they, that I was listening and it was this idea that I'm never going to be perfect. And I know that that sounds really like, of course you're not right. Like, duh. but I spend a lot of time trying to be perfect, to say the right things in this work, to come across as smart 
to come across as a good friend and an ally and that I'm in these, that I'm disrupting in the absolute best way possible. And so if I were to take away, if I were to have anybody just like go, what can I work on today? It would be doing, doing the work of getting comfortable with imperfection. And that could be going to therapy. That could be reading Brene Brown's gifts of imperfection. That could be talking to your loved ones, Mm -hmm. right? They're probably going to be quickly. I tell you what parts you're not perfect at, but I think sitting in that space and being human in this work is incredibly important. Um, And I'm learning that lesson all the time, but the more human I become, I actually find myself engaging much more because I, I'm less concerned with uh, the presentation of something and I'm more concerned with doing the right thing or whatever that thing is in the moment. Right. Um, so I think that's the one takeaway. And I, I think that the folks that we interviewed went on that journey as well uh, for a really long journey, quite honestly, and are still going through it, myself included. Awesome. Yeah. And and I would add, you know, for, for folks that are listening to this episode, you know, I think the the pieces that it will, all of it resonated and there were so many good points that you made, but I think that the pieces that I would call out to folks are just that this is a journey and, and we're all on our own journey. And, and so whatever you're taking, whatever learning you're doing, whatever you're trying to do to kind of bring that, you know, bring more information to yourself, to your teams, to your organizations, uh, just realize everyone's going to be at a different place in their journey, but also realizing that, um, we just have to keep plowing ahead. And, and I, you know, Jackie and I have talked about, we're, we're hopeful that we're getting to a place where soon we won't have to talk about some of the stuff, but it's just that like, we're at, Hey, it's going to get worse before it's going to get better kind of a situation. And hopefully that is the case. And, you know, to your point, some of the, the political, uh, things that will be going on here in in the next year or two might uh, change some of the conversation. Um, But, you know, it is, I am, I'm hopeful that folks can listen to this and and read your research because it was just amazing and um, really just dig in on how do we do this the right way? And I think, you know, this isn't research that should just be read by white people doing this work. I think everyone can, can benefit from it. Um, But really looking at this perspective of, as white people, how do we show up? How do we do this the right way? And and how can we learn from the mistakes of others, but also, as you said, be okay with making mistakes ourselves um, and keep keep trying. So thank you so much for joining us. We are gonna have uh, an episode two when Jackie can join us. I know she's super bummed she couldn't make it today, um, but we'll, we'll have her on for a future episode, uh, Becky, so that you can uh, chat more with us. But thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so um, much. Yeah. And anybody can reach out. I love to talk about this stuff. Even if you disagree with me, I'd love to hear from you. I promise. I think it's great. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Becky is on LinkedIn. Uh, You can find her. I'll put, like I said, I'll put a link for her research in our show notes. Um, And yeah, reach out if you have any questions at all. But thank you for taking the time. Uh, This is Katie Van Horn. And this is the Inclusive AF Podcast. Bye-bye. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. 
You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.